Buckle up for a wild ride. On today's episode of the Nerd by Word, Dave and I will be sharing some films that have been widely ridiculed, but that we in fact champion. Episode 85 begins now. Welcome into another episode of the Nerd by Word, the only nerd podcast that refuses to be held prisoner of blatant nostalgia bait. On today's Byword Big Talk, Dave and I will be sharing three films apiece that are widely ridiculed, whether they're rotten or not, but that we secretly adore. But first, Dave is going to take quite a leap with... Chris, I don't know what to tell you, man, but uh, I am uh, i don't know if I'm supposed to be happy about this or upset. So uh, in my youth, one of the TV shows that was a go-to for my father and I that we always watched together uh, was, of course, Quantum Leap. Uh, Dean, Dean Stockwell, Scott Bakula. I mean, the, the show was absolutely fun. Time travel, helping others. You know, it was it was a great, great, great show. And uh, I have a huge soft spot for it to this day. You could say that I'm a bit nostalgic for it. Now, here, here we are. Uh, Dean Stockwell has passed away. Um, Scott, Scott Bakula is thankfully still among us. However, uh, it's now been announced that uh, they are planning on making a Quantum Leap reboot slash sequel series. Um, so TV Line was reporting, uh, per the official logline, this iteration of Quantum Leap would pick up 30 years after Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished, at which point a new team has been assembled to restart the project in the hopes of understanding the mysteries behind the machine and the man who created it. And of course, uh, no word on whether Scott Pecula is going to be involved in this show. And, and that, I think, is ultimately my problem with this. Although I am excited of the notion of more Quantum Leap, especially if it manages to recapture the spirit of the original show, which was very much not, you know, sort of an action show time travel-wise, but more some much smaller scale, uh, personal, you know, dealing with, with social issues and the like, and, and kind of in the small scale trying to write wrongs that people experienced. I think that there was something very beautiful about that personal level of storytelling on that show. Uh, if they recapture that spirit, then good on them. But I cannot imagine a sequel series retaining anywhere near the charm that the original had without the involvement of the original duo. Now, obviously, Dean Stockwell cannot return, but, you know, Scott Pecula is right there. Uh, as far as I know, he's not doing anything right now, right? I mean, Star Trek Enterprise is long gone. Uh, he was on, what, NCIS New Orleans or some such thing. Uh, so that that show is gone. So as of right now, he's not exactly gainfully employed on television. So I, I cannot understand why they would not want to bring that character back into the fold. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Okay, so this is this is hilarious because before we hit the record button, we talked about um, I think it was Ghostbusters, a new Ghostbusters film, and like how I revealed that I've never seen any of those movies simply because, you know, we had very different parenting experiences. Like my parents are like the biggest non-nerd, flat scan, whatever. And like the only experience that I had with my dad that was remotely nerdy is when they re-released the original trilogy of Star Wars. We went to first, first I went to Empire Strikes Back and uh we were 20 minutes late so it was already full into the battle of hoth so that was my initiation into star wars um so like i i don't have any experience with quantum leap but i will say that it's been a mixed bag with rebooting these classic tv shows i i really enjoyed hawaii 50 but then like i'm an easy sell on detective shows so that wasn't you know really anything groundbreaking i enjoyed the cast a great deal um i did not enjoy macgyver reboot or um magnum pi i pref much prefer did anybody enjoy those did anybody <laughs> enjoy still, those is my question they're still trying so here's hoping that this is successful but this is like a big trend it seems with old shows like this 
Well, the thing also is that, uh, you know, several years ago, Don uh, Belisario, who was the creator of the show originally and, and you know, kind of uh, shepherded that whole show for a long time, there was a lot of talk about kind of digging into the mythology of the original run of the show for a sequel, uh, where uh, while he's time traveling, he actually, uh, Dr. Sam Beckett actually fathers a daughter, and they kind of reveal offhandedly that it changed history and she is now actually one of the people working on the quantum leap project. So, you know, the thing that was going around for a long time was that they were going to make a show where his daughter basically loses her father. They lose track of him uh, at the project and she leaps after him going through time looking for him which would have had a built-in sort of guest spot thing where you know scott Bakula can kind of come and go into the show as he pleases to make appearances as as the original guy but we still have you know a, a new character that we're following but this this thing seems to completely ditch that in favor of a quote-unquote new team i'm 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 very uncertain about this again um I'm not a big fan of nostalgia bait, but I also think that you can make a sequel to something like Quantum Leap and make it, make it successful if you're willing to to honor the original while still moving forward and breaking new ground. But Quantum Leap is such a creature of its time period. Um, I, I find it difficult to believe that they'll be able to recapture that that spirit of the show and then translate it into modern times. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because, you know, I don't want to talk out of two sides of my mouth, but like it on one hand, I like the idea of introducing like properties like that to a new generation. And then, you know, one of the things that I was happy to see about Hawaii Five O was like a much more diverse cast and then, you know, like updating it with the times and, and giving it making it more inclusive. But at the same time, some of it when it goes wrong, it just comes off as like a karaoke performance of like you know, almost like just like a bad cosplay. So I just hope that they do it well. I do too, man. So uh, you have a new story regarding one of the most anticipated movies on both of our lists right now, even though, good God, man, it's hard to predict what this movie is even going to be. What have you got, Chris? Yeah, so it appears that one of the most tumultuous and secretive or unknown MCU entries in recent memory Black Panther 2 Wakanda Forever has indeed resumed production. This past August, Shuri actress Letitia Wright suffered an onset injury that kept her from being able to film any additional scenes. This, combined with the actress's staunch anti-COVID vaccination stances, which have been made quite public, have hamstrung the production of the film. Complications arose as the CDC introduced restrictions that placed Wright, a UK native, in a tenuous situation. It is now being reported by The Hollywood Reporter that those issues have, quote, been resolved with no further explanation. Uh, It is also being reported in a separate news story that M'Baku actor Winston Duke has received a significant pay raise due to, quote, an expanded role in the film universe. Um, Reports indicate that the release date of the film, November 11th of this year, which has already been pushed back once, should not be impacted any further. So... Like, there's so much going on with this film. The tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman, um, it, it just like leaves so much up in the air. And you know, Marvel's stance of we will not recast. And you know, I, I can see both sides of that argument. Um, it's just where do we go from here? Is Shuri going to take up the mantle? Is now Mbaku um, going to take up the mantle? Which would be my my wish. Um, seeing as like, I think it would be coming like full circle as like the Jabari tribe was kind of, even if it was self-induced, isolated from the rest of Wakanda and then bringing it back full circle, you saw them joining the fight in Infinity War and kind of this, this rekindling of relationship between all of the tribes. And then for him to come in and take up the mantle of Black Panther, I think would be really, really cool. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head is that there is there is so much unknown about this property um, and, and how they're going to press forward. And really, um, what what is the purpose of this movie, I think, in the larger MCU is a question we're going to have to ask ourselves, too. Is this movie going to try to establish a new Black Panther that can be, you know, popping up in Avengers and, and in crossovers and the like, make guest spots? Or is this... Uh, is this intended more of a a tribute and send off for for Black Panther and Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman's character, um, or does it try to function somehow as both? Um, 
I'm really, really curious if we're, you know, what what shape this takes. Is it has it been reported at this point if the title of the movie is going to be Black Panther Two: Wakanda Forever, or if it's just going to be Wakanda Forever? Because if it's just Wakanda Forever, if they remove the Black Panthers, you know, part from the title, I think that indicates a very, very different movie, one that might not be as focused on the notion of a Black Panther and more on on the world of Wakanda at large. Um, yeah, but man, th- this is a huge question mark, Chris. Um, so I did a quick Google search, and it is indeed Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I added the two, and that's my mistake. Um, as far as, you know, your speculations, on the one hand, I'm very excited because uh, I very famously chronicled my feelings about the No Way Home spoilers and leaks and all of that and i very much don't want that but um i think we are going to go for like a bigger world building thing i i totally forgotten that dominique thorne is supposed to make her introduction as Ironheart in this series so maybe that will be some some team building stuff going on and then i also forgot that tenacuerta is going to be playing namor that had totally slipped my mind hmm that's an that's an interesting thing too. I figured if they're going to premiere a name or that it would be more in the in the realm of like Fantastic Four or something, because of his history with uh, with Reed and Sue in particular. Especially Sue. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. I, I will say that it is a bit heartbreaking that we're getting this without T'Challa because the rivalry slash hatred between T'Challa and Namor. And, and Atlantis and Wakanda as these two secretive nations is one of my favorite things I've ever seen in comics. Um, you know, Jonathan Hickman in particular, his work on Avengers and just how much these two legitimately hate each other and how protective they are over their kingdoms. It's it's sad to not be able to see that on screen. I wonder if any, uh, any discussions took place about um, Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger making some kind of return. Um, I, I wonder uh, at the very. I'm, I doubt it'll happen, but at the very least, as a as a conversation mm-hmm. behind the scenes, he's an extremely popular actor. He's absolutely fantastic. He was amazing as Killmonger, mm-hmm. and maybe trying to bring him back into the fold in this movie as well as somebody trying to, you know, go on a redemption arc or something and trying to claim uh, claim the Black Panther t- uh, title would be interesting too. Um, Man, I just want some some more Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, I, 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 I think we just need more of him in the MCU. I, it's just letting that character go that quickly was a regrettable decision, I think. Absolutely. All right, that wraps up our nerd news. What are your reactions to Quantum Leap and Wakanda Forever? Be sure to hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram or individually, that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. But when we come back from our first break, we're getting rotten to the core. Some of the films are rotten, some of them are not. We'll discuss that when the time comes. But uh, bad movies we love coming up next. All right, welcome back to this week's And so this, I, I, I've been really inspired here lately, I guess, for episodes, Dave. Um, my kids were watching my all-time favorite movie, which has been deemed as rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. It is my all-time favorite movie, and it was my first entry into the film, um, or first entry into this list, I should say. And so it really made me think, like, what are, like, quote-unquote bad movies that we really, really enjoy? So we each got our three picks um that we're looking at today dave the first on your list i have no history with whatsoever (laughs) yeah so let me go ahead and and start by saying uh that this is the movie that made me very publicly proclaim uh you know before the major dawn of like stuff like twitter and the like uh, on a message, movie message board that, oh, that used to be a thing, uh, loudly proclaim on a movie message board that I believe that Christian Bale would play a fantastic Bruce Wayne Batman. And then to be smacked in the face with the announcement that he actually had been cast in the role for Batman Begins, uh, that, that was quite an interesting time. I made a prediction that came true, and I feel very, very proud of that. But uh, the movie we're talking about is a 2002 science fiction movie called Equilibrium. And I'm going to tell you, man, I love this sucker. So here is the tagline according to our friend Rotten Tomatoes. 
In a futuristic world, a regime has eliminated war by suppressing emotions. Books, art, and music are strictly forbidding, and feeling is a crime punishable by death. Cleric John Preston, played by Christian Bale, is a top-ranking government agent responsible for destroying those who resist these rules. When he misses a dose of prosium, a mild-altering drug that hinders emotion, Preston, who has been trained to enforce strict laws of the new regime, suddenly becomes the only one capable of overthrowing it. Uh, so this is a rated R science fiction movie, uh, predominantly for violence. There isn't anything else really going on in here except for lots of you know action scenes and violence. And in a in a lot of ways, this movie captivated captivated me significantly more than than something like The Matrix that came out sort of in that same time period with that highly you know stylized um, violence and gunplay and you know black coats and all that stuff that was that was really a moment in in science fiction movie making for a while um now this movie is currently stands as we're recording this at a 41 percent on the tomato meter and is uh the critical consensus says it is a reheated mishmash of other sci-fi movies now, in fairness, I, I can see a little bit of that criticism being valid. I mean, alone the description kind of uh, very clearly indicates something Fahrenheit 451-ish. Um, and I think I have described this movie in the past as Fahrenheit 451 meets the Matrix. Um, and yeah, you know, the, the, is it always 100% spot on perfect? No, absolutely not. And there are certainly valid criticisms to be had of this movie. But I think a 41% is absolutely, uh, irrevocably awful. Uh, it's just not right for this movie. First of all, Christian Bale's performance is absolutely stunning in this movie. He goes from this doped up law enforcement officer incapable of having any kind of feelings and compassion through the course of the movie, slowly regaining his humanity. And, and his performance in that is absolutely spot on. Um, how he tries to connect with people, he connects with, you know, some puppies. I mean, all of that stuff is, is you know... It, absolutely stunning listening to music and actually letting it you know kind of wash over him and feeling the emotion of it for the first time um his, his performance is absolutely awesome which is why i always said i could see him do you know the bruce wayne thing very easily and then the the, the much colder you know calculated batman as well um and then you have uh of course um you have tay diggs in here he uh, is sort of uh, a rival cleric that uh you know, is uh, fighting against Christian Bale, sort of trying to un uncover what he is into. Um, we also have Emily Watson in the movie uh, in a in sort of a, a side role that is quite good. Um, and then the highlight of this movie, as silly as it may look, is the gun kata. Basically, martial arts with guns. And let me tell you, as silly as it sounds, visually speaking it is absolutely wonderful to watch it is a lot of fun so i am willing to overlook uh some of the shortcomings of this movie for you know christian bale's excellent performance for fantastic action scenes and for a movie that for a long time i enjoyed a great deal more than the first matrix movie um, and, you know, they did make some comparisons at the time of release saying, you know, this was very much like The Matrix. It is not. Um, I, I would argue that instead of having all this um, philosophical mumbo jumbo, this movie is much more uh, heartfelt in a lot of ways and kind of trying to examine what it means uh, to be human. Not always successfully, mind you, but I think certainly uh, not worthy of a rotten rating, Chris. I only have one question because I'm looking at the cast and crew list. Does Sean Bean die in this movie? <laughs> you know what? You don't don't, don't laugh. Uh, I I think he does. But <laughs> <laughs> poor guy can't catch a break. Nope, no, never can. All right, so Chris, what is your first rotten movie that you feel really passionate about? All right, this is the one that birthed the entire idea for the episode, but I absolutely love, it's my favorite movie of all time, and it's sitting at a 35% on a tomato meter. I'm talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. I absolutely love this movie, and maybe it is nostalgia that's winning me over, but I regularly watch it, and it's, it's enjoyable every time. Um, so here's a quick synopsis. 
the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles again battle their arch enemy, the Rogue Ninja Shredder. Um, Shredder attempts revenge by obtaining the same radioactive ooze that created the turtles and unleashing two new monstrous mutants, Toka, an oversized snapping turtle, and Razor, a fearsome wolf-like creature. When Shredder plans to use the remaining ooze on himself, the turtles must harness their ninja fighting skills to stop him. And the critics' consensus is is particularly brutal. Not only is the movie's juvenile dialogue unbearable for adults, but the turtles' dopey and casual attitude towards physical violence makes them poor kids' role models. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh my god. Like, just what? I absolutely adore this movie. It's it's perfect in every way. I, I love it so much. I love... I love the first one is the more critically acclaimed one and probably the, the overwhelming popular pick by most Ninja Turtle fans. Um, and I love it as well. It is, it is a good note, more serious. And I think we talked about before recording that maybe it was a, something down from the studio to make it not as serious or not as quote unquote scary for kids or whatever. But I love this movie. I love them both I, like equally like, you know, I love them like my children. They have different personalities and I love them equally. So, but I love this movie. It is, it is like a, we, we did, what did we do? We did an episode last year, I think on like the chicken soup for our nerd soul. And this one I neglected to mention. This was one of those that I will always put on. It'll always make me feel better no matter what's going on. The humor in it is so funny. Michelangelo is top notch in this film. I mean, combat cold cuts. It's, it gets me every time. Uh, I love this movie. Ernie Reyes Jr. Like they really thought that they had something there uh, as like, he was like the next big star bless his heart. But um, I I absolutely love this movie. Paige Turco is great. Um, You know, recasting, you know, um, you know, Judith Hogue in the role of April O'Neil may have not been popular at the time, but I love both of their performances and and I hold them in high regard. And then um, I think for me, the, the best part of, this film is is Francois Chow as Shredder. Like it's so menacing. It's so good. Like I love I love Shredder in this film, and it's absolutely menacing. And as silly as it is, and it embraces it, go ninja go vanilla ice. You know, just like embracing the time that this film was made in. But it gets me every time, and I love it so much. So I'm going to freely admit that I too have a really, really big soft spot for this movie. Um, I I was sort of the target audience at the time when this sucker came out. I remember seeing it in the theaters. I owned the record, uh, Go Ninja Go by Vanilla Ice. (laughs) I I will freely admit it's the only Vanilla Ice, uh, uh, you know, besides what goes in my freezer that I've ever owned. Um, But yeah, I can totally understand uh, your soft spot for the sucker. I, I'm a very, very big fan as well. I do think the first one is overall better. I have a big passion for the first mm-hmm. one. Um, and I did notice even as a kid that they were doing something with the way the turtles fight in this movie to try to make it sillier, uh, more child-friendly. They didn't really use their weapons much. Uh, even as a kid, I noticed that and it kind of took me aback a little bit. Um but I still have a huge soft spot for this one. And as far as I'm concerned, like Turtles 1 and 2 are like the, this one-two punch that has yet to be topped, I think, in live action mm-hmm. as far as a, a good Turtles movie. Uh, the less said about 3, the better, though. <laughs> three, th- 3 is our Bruno. We don't, we don't talk about the third one. Um, That's exactly right. But uh, I even remember... Okay, so Ninja Turtles 3, fun fact, even as a small child... It was the first movie that, like, I was like, WTF. Like, normally when you're a kid, like, you just have these kid blinders on. You're like, I don't care. You look back, and then you're like, why did I love this movie as a kid? That was the first movie, I think. Maybe it was, like, my accountability coming alive at that age, where I watched the third one. And I was like, this is terrible. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we can agree on that one. Uh, Dave, your next one almost made it on my list because of... Uh, so many factors. Well, I think maybe we uh, we need to talk about some of those factors. Uh, what do you think? No, hit it. <laughs> All right. So I, I think we need to talk about uh, Hook. I think uh, this movie, uh, the lowest score of anything I'm going to talk about today at a 29% mm. on the tomato meter, uh, absolutely uh, a punch in the gut. 
So here is the official synopsis, uh, according to Rotten Tomatoes. When his young children are abducted by his old nemesis, Captain Hook, played by Dustin Hoffman, middle-aged lawyer Peter Banning, played by Robin Williams, returns to his magical origins as Peter Pan. Peter must revisit a foggy past in which he abandoned Neverland for family life, leaving Tinkerbell, played by Julia Roberts, and the Lost Boys to fend for themselves. Given their bitterness toward Peter for growing up and their allegiance to their new leader, Rufio, the old gang may not be happy to see him. And the critical consensus for this movie, directed by Steven Spielberg nonetheless. The look of Hook is lively indeed, but Steven Spielberg directs on autopilot here, giving in too quickly to his sentimental, syrupy qualities. You know what critical consensus? Screw you. There is nothing wrong with being a little sentimental and heartfelt every once in a while. And even as a child, this movie always got me. Um, There is something so beautiful about this movie in a number of ways, Uh, the most important of which to me is how it deals uh, not not just with the notion of growing up and the things you leave behind from your childhood, but more importantly, the notion of parenthood and and love of your children and all the things, how far you will go to to protect them, the things that... um, that you need to understand in order to be a good parent, how, uh, you know, work isn't everything. I mean, all those things that, that, you know, adult life kind of tries to swallow you up on. Um, and that, you know, family is most important. Uh, Robin Williams performance is absolutely wonderful in this movie. I absolutely adore how he slowly goes from this uptight lawyer back to, you know, the Peter Pan character, and then tries to kind of balance the two a little bit. Uh, Dustin Hoffman is hook is is just an absolute blast in this movie. I don't think that man has found any scenery he hasn't chewed in this movie. There was nothing left of the scenery. Um, the special effects for the time were absolutely wonderful. And who was cooler than Rufio? Like who oh. was cooler than Rufio? I mean, if, if when it comes to uh, 1991, you could not be cooler than than Rufio of all people. I mean, I had the Rufio action figure. I had the Peter Pan sword, and I had the Rufio action figure because although I love Peter Pan, dude, Rufio was just the coolest. Um, so yeah, you know, I I think especially now, you know, with Robin Williams no longer being with us, I think this movie really deserves in a lot of ways a, a reevaluation. I mean, it is sentimental. It is a little syrupy. It is a little heartfelt. But I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that in a family film. And I do think Spielberg's direction in this movie is very good. The movie looks wonderful. I'm thinking, you know, when... Uh, when uh, Peter Pan returns, Peter Banning, excuse me, returns to Neverland, uh, you know, that those sweeping vistas as he kind of like is, is dragged in by, uh, by Tinkerbell. It's absolutely a gorgeous vision of Neverland. Um, So the performances in this movie are are really, really good. Uh, And yeah, I don't think being sentimental in this particular case is anything bad in any way, shape or form. To me, this is sort of the, the definite, Peter Pan sequel like this this is this is where I see that character going as as the character matures it just it fits in every way shape or form I absolutely adore this movie Chris yeah so um we're talking we're going to be talking about two legendary comedians today that were instrumental in like my upbringing and my childhood and like their impact on my life cannot be understated and the first of which is Robin Williams and um, when he, he tragically passed on my birthday and it was like the darkest day of my life. Like it was the worst birthday ever, but like then at the same time, like I could remember all of the fond memories and everything that he brought to me as a kid growing up. And this is one of those performances, like who else could have played in this role that can dually play the role of an adult and then adult masquerading as a child or like, or embracing their inner child. I'd wager that nobody else could do what Robin Williams did in this film. And for the hoity toity Hollywood elite critics to just thumb their nose at anything that is remotely sentimental, it seems is just, just a, a more ammunition for, for what their shtick is. And then Dawson Hoffman is just like such a perfect villain in here. It's very, very thespian. I'm a sucker for like a super thespian stage actor type performance and, you know, look no further. Also Bob Hoskins shouts to Bob Hoskins, one of the greatest character actors we've ever had Mario himself, um, <laughs> you know, as, as me, 
Um, and then Dante Basco, I mean, like every kid, even, you know, I was three years old when this movie came out. Everybody wanted to be Rufio. He's like a punk icon, like uh, against the establishment. Like he's an icon. So shouts to Dante Basco. Hope he's having a great time. And holy crap, man, I forgot completely, but Maggie Smith yeah. uh, as, as as sort of, you know, old Wendy was a wonderful performance, too. I, th- I thought that was really, really captivating and really anchored and rooted a lot of the, the real world, quote unquote, stuff at the beginning of the movie. That was a great little performance, too, man. Dame, give her her title. <laughs> uh, I, I, I deeply apologize. Dame Maggie Smith. I, I cannot believe I said that. <laughs> All right, Chris, what is your next movie? Oh, man. I think a lot of the times on this podcast, it becomes an echo change bureau where we agree far too much. But I think I'm going to rattle the cages a little bit because my next film I absolutely adore and I ride for is Batman Forever. And it is much maligned with a tomato meter. So, So it's interesting because most of the movies so far that we've talked about um, I think all of them so far that we've talked about have a rotten tomato meter from the critics, but then the audience, I love when the audience dunks on the, the critics. Um, unfortunately for Batman Forever, it's even worse in the audience score. It's a tomato meter of 38% and the audience score of 32%. Um, so let's hit you with a synopsis here. Batman, played by Val Kilmer, faces off against... T- uh, two foes, the schizophrenic, horribly scarred, formerly district attorney Harvey Dent, aka Two Face, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and the Riddler, played by Jim Carrey, a disgruntled ex Wayne Enterprises inventor seeking revenge against his former employer by unleashing his brain sucking weapon on Gotham City's residents. As the Cape Crusader also deals uh, with tortured memories of his parents' murder, he has a new romance with psychologist Chase Meridian. Nicole Kidman, who gave yours truly an awakening of sorts at such a young age. Like, I like curls. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. And then the critics consensus uh, consensus says loud, excessively busy, and often boring. How in the hell can it be boring? Okay, it's not boring. Anyway, sorry. Batman Forever, nonetheless, has the charisma of Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones to offer mild relief. So, this is probably the one that I'll have to defend the most, but I love the performances in this, and while they're not executed to perfection, I will wholeheartedly agree. It gives me something on screen that I've been starved for with subsequent Batman, you know, incantations. Like, I love that they fully lean into the villainy here. Um, Chase Meridian is like Nicole Kidman is like. There's this old um, cartoon that's made after like Lauren Bacall where like the, this woman's walking and like, there's just flames in the path behind her. Like that's Nicole Kidman in this movie. Good God. She was bringing fire. And then I love Val Kilmer as Bruce Wayne, probably one of my favorite iterations of Batman. Like he's just got that stoic energy. Um, I, I just love Val Kilmer so much. Um, and then say what you want about Chris O'Donnell as Dick Grayson. We've never had a live-action Batman and Robin since this, and Batman and Robin, I guess. But, like, even as well-received as, and and not so much, some of the other live-action Batman, how have we not gotten Robin on the screen? It's crazy to think. And we're not talking about you, um, whatever, John Drake, Robin, whatever that crap was in The Dark Knight Rises. So I love Batman Forever. I think, I said before we recorded, I think it leans a lot into the 60s kind of campiness, and I'm all here for it. I love this movie. It is not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. And I go up, Jim Carrey was the other comedic legend that I reference. You know, The the Mask particularly was such a, like, a molding thing for me like i i absolutely love jim carrey and it's it's funny now because like people are throwing stones at paul dano's the riddler uh costume and whatever but they're like oh it should look more like and i was like well it was it was harped on when we had jim carrey leaning into the riddlerness of it so I, i'm not sure what fans want but i love this movie there's a lot to unpack here chris <laughs> So uh, I will say um, I, I was pretty much the target audience uh, age-wise when this sucker came out, and I, I saw Batman Forever in the theaters. 
Um, and at the time, I have to admit, I liked it. I still like it in a lot of ways. Um, I'm a big fan of Val Kilmer as, as Batman. I, I I think that whole performance worked incredibly well. I wasn't even necessarily um, opposed to like the 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 reinvention of Gotham City or the look, you know, the sort of neon drenched look that they went for it reminds me a little bit of what they would later do in something like batman beyond you know as a, yeah. as a future gotham as neo gotham like the 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 art deco slash you know neon glow thing that they had going on was actually a really interesting design choice uh nicole kidman in this movie made me feel feelings um <laughs> that 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 performance uh, every time uh, requires a cold shower afterwards i believe um <laughs> So there was there was a lot to, there was a lot to love in this movie and yeah you know Chris O'Donnell as Robin I'm a big fan of Robin I like he I'm I'm always kind of the the guy who rides for the sidekicks yeah and I'm a big fan of Robin I was glad that they actually introduced Robin and I understand why they made him older and everything because you know uh you know Batman running around with like an 11 year old 12 year old you know fighting is is sometimes difficult to justify and for comic book fans although I, I i really love to see that dynamic once on the big screen i think that would be fascinating um there is however i have to say on the villain side i enjoyed very little here um and my big criticism will always land squarely on jim carrey who was and i know you love this guy man but he was <laughs> He he was of the moment. Yeah, there is nothing. There is absolutely nothing timeless in that performance. There is nothing in that performance even that screams Riddler to me. It's just Jim Carrey if villain. Yeah. Jim was basically playing himself, and I almost feel in this movie a little bit like Tom Lee Jones, who, uh, according to a Jim Carrey interview from a few years ago, famously said to him behind the scenes, "I cannot sanction your buffoonery." Like, I, you know, I never was a big Ace Ventura fan. I, I adored The Mask. I, I thought that movie was fantastic. But I never quite connected with Jim Carrey. And Jim Carrey was the star of this movie, not Val Kilmer as Batman. Uh, the focus was very much on, on Jim Carrey's quote-unquote antics. And I think for me, the, the villain side, and, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, you know, he has, he should not, you know, make any critiques there you want to talk about buffoonery he was <laughs> yeah like you know two-face and riddler were so far removed from what makes them interesting in the comic books to basically become borderline you know joker knockoffs or something yeah. with the constant giggling and stuff and so that that's kind of sours me on this movie i love the look i like a lot of the performances i just don't think the villains ever clicked for me quite um if if that would have been just a notch more menacing and less goofy i think this could have been like a top tier batman movie and i think things would have maybe ended up looking a little different in the history of cinematic batman if this movie would have hit just slightly differently at the time can we agree on this it's not batman and robin <laughs> god i hate that movie so much <laughs> that was that was another one of those movies that like i had i had a bet going with like a family friend that he would take me to batman and robin if i went down this big scary water slide. So I did. And he finally took me and it was another one of those like TMNT three, even worse. Like, like I almost said like WTF, like as a, as a small child, like it was just that bad. Yeah, it was, it, it was a huge disappointment and, and shout out to laundry karate or Kung Fu or whatever that was in Batman forever. When Robin is like doing his laundry, that may be the most bizarre scene in the whole movie. I could have lived without that one. At least is this the one where we get like close-ups on the bat butt and nipples. I can't recall. I think the bat bat butt uh, and nipple close-ups actually happened in the beginning of Batman and Robin, but I may be misremembering. There's also something that is super cringe at the beginning of this film, and the 90s were horrendous for this, so I don't necessarily fault this film. The abject product placement, where he says, "Can you?" Uh, Alfred's like, can you at least take a sandwich? And he's like, I'll get drive-through. <laughs> Which was, I think, um, so. so here's the story that I read in various articles, and you know, don't quote me on this. I don't even remember the source. I read too much. Let's put it that way. But I recall that one of the problems that arose between the studio and Tim Burton is that they were making all these deals, particularly with like McDonald's and stuff for like Batman Returns children's toys and stuff. And then, you know, parents tried to take their kids to the movie and the Batman Returns was not a movie in any way 
friendly for kids. No. And so and so all of those toys basically languished and the um the, the their corporate uh sponsor tie-in partners whatever you will were really really grumpy. And so Batman Forever was in some ways a a course correction to make those corporate sponsors more happy. And so the 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 running theory is that that particular line is a direct outgrowth of we're going to go ahead and make McDonald's happy with this movie. So um, I, I can't I, I can't fault it for that because it, it, a lot a lot of the stuff in this movie was directly aimed at basically saying you see McDonald's you can have your Happy Meal toys now. See, it's it's funny. Couple things. Uh, you said a uh, rose very slowly, and I immediately started singing "Kiss from a Rose." Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional or not, but um, absolutely, all, clearly one of the best things to come from this movie. This iconic song. Um, but then another iconic thing that I remember so fondly are those dope glasses that I wish I still had from uh, McDonald's. All those glassware that they had was so cool. Oh yeah. All right, um, Dave, your final film is suggested. If you like this film, you might also like your next entry. All right, so I uh, find it interesting that right now we are experiencing a big, uh, a bit of a Brendan Fraser um, renaissance, if you will. Uh, people have kind of come to realize the dude is a decent actor and a really decent human being on top of that, and everybody sort of is just wishing the best for him to have a comeback. And he's, you know, kind of crawling back out of obscurity and landing new roles, including, you know, on HBO Max's Doom Patrol and the like. And, you know, more power to him. I, I like to go back for a moment to a world where he was the next big action star. Uh, in 99, the movie The Mummy released, um, as, and it's probably one of the, the better sort of rip-roaring adventure movies to come out of that era. It almost is, in, in a lot of ways, reminiscent of something like an Indiana Jones flick. And I ride for that movie, man. I absolutely adore The Mummy. Much less popular, however, is the 2001 sequel, the Mummy Returns, which currently stands at a 47% rotten on the tomato meter. Um, the critical consensus is that uh, the Mummy Return in The Mummy Returns, the special effects are impressive, but the characters seem secondary to the computer-generated imagery, which, you know, you can say for any number of action movies, but, but sure. Uh, so here's the official synopsis. Ten years after the events of the first film, Rick, Brendan Fraser, and, uh, and Evelyn, Rachel Weiss are settled in 1935 London, where they are raising their son. When a chain of events finds the corpse of Imhotep resurrected, the O'Connells go on a desperate race to save the world from unspeakable evil and to rescue their son before it is too late. So, let me go ahead and kind of put in context why I adore this movie. Two other movies have since been released that bear the name The Mummy. There's The Mummy, Tomb of the De Dragon Emperor, The Mummy 3, which feels absolutely nothing like the first, despite some of the cast returning. And The Mummy starring Tom Cruise, which is an abomination against humanity. <laughs> like, I think really that they're like investigating it for a violation of the Geneva Convention. So what what is The Mummy Returns' big sin then? Um, it is very much a lot like the first, I think that seems to be the only sin. It's more of the same. And in this case, I think more of the same was absolutely fantastic. We get all returning characters from the first one, a couple of new characters. Uh, there's a great action set pieces, lots of fun in the desert. The special effects are, are very similar for the most part. I will address the elephant in the room. Um, for the most part, very good, just like in the first one for the time period. Um, you know, considering CG was not doing all that great in the late 90s, early 2000s yet, uh, some some forgiveness has to be extended. So, you know, overall, this movie is just as good as the first one. The writing is sharp, the wit is good, the humor is there, the action set pieces are fun. Brendan Fraser is Brendan Frasering it. Uh, it's just awesome. It's an awesome movie. And I left the theater satisfied at the time in, with the sequel. I love it just as much as the first. So it, it disappoints me to no end that this movie to this day has such a bum rep. I just don't understand it. Like if you like the first one, how can you not like the second one? They're cut from the same cloth, especially if you consider what comes later, which is absolute booty. That's what it comes down to. 
Now, I will have to talk about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, in, I believe, his first movie appearance, he appears in the prologue of this movie as the Scorpion King. And then in the end of the movie, spoilers for a 21-year-old movie, at the end of the movie, he pops up as some kind of scorpion creature with The Rock's face, with the face very badly CGI'd. And it is one of the cringiest, worst CGI special effects of all time, and it is aged horribly. Although, let's go ahead and admit, it didn't look good to begin with even in 2001. Uh, however, I can forgive it that. Because these movies always felt uh, like something like the original intent behind Indiana Jones and Star Wars, a throwback to like these 1930s, 1940s serials, you know, swashbuckling adventure stuff. And a lot of those had really like, you know, if you look at old Flash Gordon, you know, they didn't have great special effects even by their time either. They were almost B-movie level. So I, I can forgive the shoddy special effect at the end on the rock because the packet overall of this movie is just as good as, as the first uh, it's totally worth a watch if you enjoyed the first one in fact there's a double feature for you watch the mummy and the mummy returns back to back and you will feel good yeah i love i ride for both of these first two films um and it was even it's even weird that the first one uh, i think you almost had it on your list because it was super close to being rotten yeah, I read a couple of articles that were published like a year or two ago, and it pl and it had they had um, the first Mummy as rotten at like fifty some percent, and now when you check on Rotten Tomatoes, it puts it at like sixty one percent. So I feel like there may have been some new reviews that like have kind of softened on the movie a little bit, you know, because I think in hindsight these movies hold up a, a heck of a lot better than I think people even gave them credit for at the time. Yeah, I love these movies. I love all the Indiana Jones stuff. And, you know, both of us, I think it tickles our funny bone when it comes to, you know, being history nerds and, and particularly ancient history for me. Anything that has, you know, Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology, Norse mythology, I'm, I'm in. You don't have to work hard um, and, unless you're unless you're like a movie like The Gods of Egypt, where you have a bunch of white people playing African gods and goddesses. So <laughs> like I'm, I'm good on that one. But um, yeah, no thanks, man. No thanks. Also, I mean, like, let's talk about it. We already talked about it with Nicole Kidman, one of the best looking casts all around in both of these films. I mean, like Rachel Weisz was bringing it. Patricia Velasquez. I mean, good God. Like even like no matter your orientation, some handsome looking gentleman as well. Oh, fair. Like it's like, a, like one of the best looking cast. I mean, like The Rock. Uh so, like, I, I absolutely love both of these movies, and the less said about the subsequent films, Dragon Emperor, it looks like that was just like a contractual obligation that they were trying to pander to, like, a, you know, a different market. I think that was, was that like a Chinese mummy? Yes, it was. Okay, so yeah, like maybe yeah, Jet, they were Jet to... Li, I think, if I remember right. Yeah, and so like it, it should have been better than it was, but like it looks like everybody was just mailing it in, much like Jennifer Lawrence in the the X Men movies, due to a contractual obligation. Yeah, that's that seems about right. All right, Chris, let's bring our final movie to the fore here. Okay, so. I'm coloring outside the lines a little bit with a movie that is not technically rotten. But if you ask any MCU fan, the vast majority of them will say it's the worst of the MCU. I'm talking about Thor The Dark World. I I enjoy this movie a great deal. Like I said, when it comes to any kind of mythology or ancient history, I'm an easy sell. It's at 66% on the tomato meter, um, 75 on the audience score, which was a surprise. So uh, the synopsis is, in ancient times, the gods of Asgard's uh, gods of Adgard uh, fought and won a war against an evil race known as the Dark Elves. The survivors were neutralized and their ultimate weapon, the Aether, was buried in a secret location. Hundreds of years later, Jane Foster finds the Aether and becomes its host, forcing Thor to bring her to Asgard before Dark Elf captures her, uh, Malekith, excuse me, captures her and uses the weapon to destroy the Nine Realms, including Earth. So... This is far from a perfect film, but if you do a little bit of insight on like the background, I think Patty Jenkins was the original director and left due to creative differences. Um, Alan Taylor came on uh, in, in, in like coming out of the bullpen to finish it, but there was a lot production wise behind the scenes, uh, a lot of 
a lot of the script was rewritten to feature Loki spinning out of his popularity from the Avengers and his big following. So they kind of made Loki a bigger star. And I think it probably took away from Malekith, which was probably the greatest, the film's greatest sin was Malekith because you and I both love Chris Eccleston. Um, the little absolutely bit of, the little bit that I've watched of Doctor Who, he's absolutely magnificent. So now knowing that, having watched Doctor Who after this, I'm even more pissed about it. But um, Malekith, if you've read Jason Aaron's Thor, um, you'll be particularly disappointed in the portrayal in this film. Like he's like a leveled up Loki. Like you think Loki's bad? Like Malekith is really really deep-seated like nefarious stuff and like particularly like it culminates in war of the realms so like there's some comic recommendations for you as well but there's just so much visually this movie is gorgeous i really really enjoy it and i think i think there are if, if for no other line of defense that there are mcu films that are far worse iron man 2 is is so bad so bad so bad um, and then I think the Incredible Hulk is is a a, a bit of a wet fart as well. So um, I, I I enjoyed Thor: The Dark World, and if we if we took the time to you know in our famous way of where we fix movies, quote unquote, I think we could make a couple of tweaks, and this would be right there at the top because all we'd have to do really is is give Malekith a little bit more screen time and a little bit truer character adaptation and development. I think we'd be good to go. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Now, this this may be an unpopular opinion, and I probably could have put this on the list, but I don't think the the Incredible Hulk is a wet fart. I actually kind of like that movie, to be honest with you. <laughs> but I will, but I will, I will agree with Iron Man two being, you know, I a think it's huge the worst. I after think the Iron first Man, one. I think Iron Man two is by far the worst. In the I, I I think that's probably fair. Um, but yeah, you know, Thor The Dark World. I mean, what can I say about this movie? I am now uh, more well-versed in Thor lore as far as uh, Marvel is concerned than I was at the time. And so I kind of understand where they went wrong with Malekith, you know, and, and that, that you are right is the biggest misstep. What a waste of Christopher Eccleston. Oh what a waste. He's so good, man. And that was just, that was not enough. They, they, they should have written much better for him, but there's so much enjoyable stuff in that movie. Um, I, I I don't see why it gets all the hate. Besides, you know, the underwriting of Malekith, I think the only thing in this movie that really rubs me the wrong way is the guy running around naked for the whole movie. Like, <laughs> I just I just that that joke wore wore out its welcome within yeah. the first five minutes, and then him just constantly taking off his clothes for the rest of the movie just wasn't entertaining anymore to me. Yeah. Like, if they would have just cut all that out and just given like. You know, Malekith more more authentic. You know, comic book based writing. How what kind of threat this guy can be? I think we would have been in good shape with this movie. Yeah, and I and I will say, a lot of people speculate that Malekith's character motivation and backstory suffered at the expense of more Loki. But you know, it's like getting a second helping of dessert because Hiddleston does absolutely destroy it. You know, with more time, he's like, "You're going to give me more screen time, bet." Because he's his interactions with Thor and seeing kind of the go between, seeing more of their relationship. I know we make a lot of Ragnarok and and certifiably and justifiably so, but um, I think I think the seeds were planted for that, and there was a lot of good brother bonding moments here. You saw more depths of their relationship rather than simply the adversarial stuff we got in the first film. Absolutely. All right, that wraps up our byword big talk. What did you think of our picks for the rotten movies that we love? What are some rotten movies that you love that you think don't get enough love? Uh, be sure to hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. But when we come back, we're hitting you more with our uh, with two more of our patented nerd commendations. <laughs> Okie dokie, folks, we're back for our final segment, the one that we've patented uh, as our own segment, and nobody else can take it from us. It is... All right, Dave, you're talking zombies? What? Dude, 
you know what? I'm 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 going to talk about something even more important. I'm going to talk about the PlayStation One for a second. I'm a Nintendo guy. I always was a Nintendo guy. Uh, I had huge Nintendo loyalty as a kid. I had pretty much every Nintendo system. So when the time came, uh, I obviously chose the Nintendo 64, uh, and I have very, very few regrets in that regard um, over the PlayStation 1. However, there is one thing. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain I would have had issues playing this with my, uh, you know, in my home with my parents anyways. They, they were not big fans of me going too gory and bloody, but my, my God, man, scary movies. I love them. So it's no surprise that I would have loved some scary video games. And I did play a healthy dose of the first Resident Evil and Resident Evil 2 at a friend's house. And, and, and I adore those games. And it's undeniable the impact that those games had on, on the survival horror genre, on, on, on gaming in general, and, and on how to make games genuinely scary. So my excitement was huge uh, back in the uh, Stone Age of 2002 when they announced that there was going to be a Resident Evil movie. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, it's straight about as far away from the games as possible and then inexplicable to me spawned a franchise that lasted like six or seven movies and, and featured basically nothing but just mindless action it was like Mila Jokovic action shots. That's like the whole movie. There's almost no story. There's no acting. And it is at no point in any way in the entire franchise scary. And so I, I that whole franchise offended me, basically, and my sensibilities for horror and how much I respect and love the Resident Evil franchise. Now, for, for context, the original Resident Evil movie that was released in 2002 has a 36% on the tomato meter. And the critical consensus is, like other video game adaptations, Resident Evil is loud, violent, formulaic, and cheesy. The last movie in the series, which came out in 2016, is at a 37% on the tomato meter. With a critical consensus, Resident Evil, the final chapter, may prove mind-numbingly chaotic for the unconverted, but for the fans of the venerable franchise, it offers a fitting kinetic conclusion. These movies blow. So somebody explained to me how the new movie that was just recently released in 2021, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, which is actually designed to be scary, sits at a 30%. Actually below the crappy action Resident Evil movies. I don't, un I don't get it. So my nerd commendation today is go out and watch Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. Watch it. Watch it as soon as you can. Is it a flawless movie? No, it is not. Does it have missteps? Yes, certainly it does. But it is such an upgrade over every single previous cinematic Resident Evil that it is like night and day. There are genuinely frightening moments. There is a sense of dread. There are some really, really cool camera work going on here. There is an effort to make this Resident Evil in the sense of the video games. And, and, and I love it for that, despite, you know, warts and all. So here's the, the log line for the movie. Returning to the origins of the massively popular Resident Evil franchise... Uh, fan and filmmaker Johannes Roberts brings the games to life for a whole new generation. In Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, once the booming home uh, of a pharmaceutical company, Umbrella Corporation, Raccoon City is now a dying Midwestern town. The company's exodus left the city a wasteland with great evil brewing below the surface. So this movie essentially uses the characters and the storyline from Resident Evil 1 and 2 and merges them together into a singular movie. Uh, so you have, you know, the whole Spencer Mansion stuff from the first game, but you also have, you know, all the crazy stuff that happens uh, in the actual city itself from Resident Evil 2. And that may be the movie's first misstep. I think it did not give the characters enough room to breathe. Uh, the second misstep in the movie probably is uh, the portrayal of Leon Kennedy, who is a very, very popular 
figure in this franchise, and he spends most of this movie basically the loser and the butt of jokes until kind of at the last second of the movie. He he, he kind of shows a glimmer of the Leon Kennedy from the video games. But other than that, man, you know, if you've been looking for a Resident Evil adaptation that takes it seriously, that tries to, uh, you know, create a sense of dread, that tries to actually be a real horror movie and not just some dumb action fest, you know, this is the movie you've been waiting for. And I never will understand how the sucker can get a rating from critics lower than the previous Resident Evil movies, which were absolute cinematic hogwash, Chris. <laughs> so my nerd comment, my nerd commendation, go out and watch Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. Is it flawed? Absolutely. But if you're a fan of Resident Evil, this is where it's at. This is the closest to perfection that we have gotten of a Resident Evil adaptation that tries to actually be a horror movie. It's really puzzling, like the the running joke for the past 20 years or so that that video game movies just never pan out. Like I remember being so excited for the Assassin's Creed film. It's my favorite game series of all time. And then that, that happened. I was like, and Fastbender. Okay. Fastbender. That's amazing. Nah, it's no good. It's, it's, it's just crazy. Like how it's just like this curse, you know, maybe pun intended that, that just hangs over all video game adaptations. Don't worry, Chris Pratt's Mario movie is oh, coming to save us all. Can we please? Can we please? <laughs> uh, all right, Chris, what is your nerd commendation for this week? All right, so I've chronicled my love for Tanahasi Coates' Black Panther uh, time and again on this podcast. In fact, I assigned it to you for homework. Uh, I, I recruited you to... Um, the the team of black panther and so when that run uh finished up with its 50th issue with last year's um issue 25 of the second volume i was super nervous about like what new direction the character and the title was going to take place but i mean like you bring on an academy award-winning writer like john ridley um and an incredible artist like juan cabal i mean like that that's a pretty good follow-up so i was still nervous but i recently binged the uh i think of the first two or three issues of this new run and i'm i'm so happy with it it's a definitely a different story than than what uh tanahasi coates told but it is very very interesting know this all the same it's like a you know it's like a novel it tells a different story but i absolutely love it it's like it's like a james bond like spy thriller but for wakanda it's really really cool so like the basic thing is that you know now in the avengers uh book uh T'Challa is the leader of the Avengers. And so like, he's got all of his responsibilities there. Add to that, the title of King of Wakanda. Now, some of that, um, you know, responsibility for the country has kind of been unloaded because they've become more of a democracy. So, but he's still, you know, between two places. And so he's dealing with that. And then also it's revealed in the first issue that for years, T'Challa has had sleeper agents in different countries that may have adversarial relations uh, with Wakanda. So he's had sleeper agents that mysteriously died in Wakanda and then popped up as sleeper agents in other countries. And then uh, they are found out at the end of the first issue. And so like, they're all on the run and like, he's got to pull them out. And it's something straight out of like mission impossible or, uh, or James Bond. And it's super fascinating, like some, some really adrenaline pumping stuff and, and uh, I'm excited to see where we go further on in this title. Also reminds me that I have to read John Ridley's other work, the other history of the DC universe that was recommended by my friend Michael. Um, so I got to check that one out. But I'm very, very much enjoying the new Black Panther volume. So is, are all these issues already on Marvel Unlimited? I Chris? believe the first one might be, but I think it's only been two or three issues. So it's not a lot to get caught up on. Uh, well, I'm going to wait for it to pop up on Marvel Unlimited, and I'm going to give that sucker a ride. Um, by the way, that is still the greatest nerd commendation you've ever made to me. God, Marvel Unlimited is good. I am I am just like inhaling comic books. I probably have read like 200 comic books over the last two weeks or something. 
like every oh, every waking moment i'm on that app so as soon as this black panther stuff starts popping up on on marvel unlimited i'm all over it all right well here's a bonus one you got unlimited now and i think i may have said this already but the spine tingling spider-man it's a, like an unlimited comic exclusive it's written by saladin ahmed and one ferreira does the art and it's absolutely like if you love horror so you're going to absolutely love it so it's it's kind of like um craven's last hunt kind of the horror vibes of um you know, even like the child within or something like that, but like horror Spider-Man comics, it's really, really good. No, man, I'm going to be all over that just as soon as I am done with my massive, massive Hawkeye read through. Oh, I'm going to have some nerd commendations coming out of that (laughs) stuff too, I think. All right. There's lots of good comics out there to read, but that wraps up another episode of the nerd by word podcast. We thank you so much for joining us on another wild adventure. Um, And as always, be sure to uh, like, follow, subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which now has rating systems and reviews as well, or our fancy-owned website, nerdbyword.com. And what are the rotten movies that you take a ride for? What are your favorite movies that for some reason have a rotten score among critics? Find us on social media and tell us all about it. We are on Twitter and on Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at ThatNerdDave and at ThatNerdChris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.